We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, good question. Um, if I'm honest with you, I'm not entirely sure who's on the podcast this week. Unprofessional, I know. But I haven't had the chance to check. I've got to do the intro now because I've got a short window because I've got to do many things in very little time. So I'm sure it's Poznan in my pants, Stilberto and Yankee Gunner, I think. Don't quote me on that. As for the game... <laughs> I'm sure the guys can turn that into much better content for you to listen to. So enjoy the podcast. Um, i just got to say quickly, I really hate Chelsea. Don't lose to Chelsea, please, again. I hate them so much with a passion. So it really stings. So I'm not even going to talk about the game because I'm still still a bit miffed about that, to be honest with you. But um, bounce back at the weekend against Burnley in the Cup. See some new faces. Get some players back from injury. I'm sure we've got plenty left for the rest of the season to um, to go again and kick on because we need to kick on again don't we uh, we've dropped a bit recently but I'm positive about players coming back that's going to make all the difference fingers crossed toes crossed and all that so enjoy the podcast and I'll be back after the Burnley match weak useless completely futile shocking embarrassing all adjectives you would use to describe Tim and Paul's efforts to keep me from being excessively negative on this podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you should block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner, where I have resoundingly declared our title challenge over, among other insanely hideous conclusions, that hopefully I will be 
stepping back from within the next days and weeks. Uh, but first, before we get into what I like to call the negativity parade or the theater of dooms, uh, let's introduce the other gentleman who will be here trying to put all kinds of positive spins on Arsenal nil, Chelsea one. First, there's Stilberto on Twitter. He's Tim in human existence, as far as I've been told. Hello, Tim. Good evening. Dramatic pause. Dramatic pause for effect <laughs> is what it says here in the script. Exit sued by Bear. Um, and then the man who's watched the game 17 times and can tell me why Matthew Flamini was brilliant. His name is uh, Paul, but you can uh, find him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Hello, Powell. Thank you, Elliot. I've watched it 1.6 times, and I can tell you why Flamini was not as bad as they said. Oh, I, I am, honestly, I could not be more excited for that. I mean, <laughs> literally, could not be more Oh, it's on, Let's baby. It's on. We're going to get to larger issues. We're going to get to larger issues, like the, the burning questions on everybody's lips. How bad is Arsenal? Really bad or the worst team ever? Like, we need to decide that. Bad or, or horrible? Um, but before we get to that, let's start at the beginning. Starting lineup. Tim, I'll start with you. Um, you know, I think if you look at the results with Coughlin and Cazorla out and Alexis out, they had been okay. But if you look at the performances and the underlying metrics, hashtag metrics, data analytics, um, you will see that the team was probably on a, on a decline. And... A lot of the root of that was midfield. How surprised are you that the manager really stayed conservative, went with the same lineup, didn't – you know, a lot of people said, oh, it would be throwing El Nenny to the Wolves to, to start him here. What did, what did you think when you saw it was no changes? Um, I wasn't surprised, <clears throat> um, to be quite honest with you. I thought he'd do that. Um, but, yeah, I, I completely get what you're getting at. I mean, we signed El Nenny and we did the deal quickly. Um, presumably because, you know, we realised we had an immediate need to amend that midfield, which is just not working and, it, and you know, it's not going to work. Um, I think it's reasonably obvious and you're quite right. We haven't really played particularly well for quite a long time when you look at, like, the Newcastle victory and things like that. I, won- I do wonder if... Um, yeah, I mean, because also, first of all, if you sign a player, you're absolutely 100%... Um, you're backing them, you're, you think they're great and whatnot, you play them, um, regardless of who their debut is against. Um, that said, I do wonder if his choice was governed slightly by the fact that Coquelin looks like he's going to come back a bit early. Um, maybe were Coquelin another three to four weeks away, I wonder if he might have plumped for El Nenny just to see if he can get any kind of partnership working between him and Ramsey. Um, but, I mean, it looks like Coquelin's going to play some part on Saturday, whether that's from the bench, but you look at the next league game, he's probably going to start, he's probably going to be back in there. Um, and actually, Coquelin and Ramsey, whether they fit together is another question. I think they probably will fit together better than Ramsey and Flamini, but in in kind of crude terms, Flamini and Coquelin are very similar types of player. Coquelin's just better um so i wonder if, if that governed things um a little bit on his decision not to play on any because there's probably not like you know a long-term need for it so i, I wasn't hugely surprised but yeah that but i mean that said uh, the sending off changed so much i'm not 
sure how much that made a difference. Although the build up to the sending off, I think you could see quite clearly that that's not wasn't looking awesome. That's working. No, exactly. Um, you know, I'm, a lot of people said to me when I raised this issue on Twitter that uh, you can't throw El Nani to the Wolves. You can't start him away at Stoke. You can't start him, uh, you know, against Chelsea. Well, first of all, Chelsea are sitting at the time 16th in the table. They're having a horrible season. If you can't start him at home against, I, I know it's still Chelsea, but every game is a big game in the Premier League. The other thing is, presumably the reason he's brought in is someone looked and said, okay, Flamini is starting every single game for us in central midfield, even putting aside the question of whether he's an adequate partner for Ramsey. Matthew Flamini starting every single game for us in central midfield is not a, a sustainable approach. And it, no matter how good or not good El Nani is, I mean, it, I think to me it was just clear that change for change's sake was needed in the midfield. I don't know that the midfield could have been any less functional than it has been. Um, but we'll go over to you on this, and Paul. Also, yep. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to add one thing very quickly. Um, Mikel Arteta not even on the bench. Um, I think that probably yeah. says a lot about the level of involvement he's going to have for the next few months and probably to the end of his Arsenal career. Yeah, I mean, that's a good and sad point. But, you know, I'm a huge Mikel Arteta fan, but if he, he can't play, he can't play. And I just think if you said to me at the beginning of this season during a crucial period of our, uh, of our season, Matthew Flamini is not just going to play games, but start every game. I'd say that's close to a calamity. Now, I'm prone to the hysterical. But that's really what's happening. And to me, the signing of El Nenny, I, I would have presumed, was at minimum a stopgap till Coughlin was back. Not even necessarily because Flamini is not great, but because he cannot play every single game. Um, but we will go over to you, Paul, and you know I, I want to ask you the same question. What did you make of uh, Kanye's Twitter rant? <laughs> I tried to piece oh, that, it sorry, together. That's a, sorry, uh, that's another podcast I'm doing. Yeah, so what did you think of the starting line? Um, so on the El Neni thing, as you'll know, I, I won't have been too surprised. Um, no, I think you I, did make – I want to stop you and interrupt you because it's important <laughs> that I credit you by not letting you speak. <laughs> on a previous podcast, you said you thought there was a really good chance that El Nenny was one for the future, that he would persist with Flamini, and El Nenny was more of a Gabriel-type signing, and you appear to have hit the nail precisely on the head. That's what three or four watchings of a match really Will do, do for you. Yeah, All right, I, now, you, I, now you can speak. And I think that's, you know, that is what I've, I've mooted as a possibility. I think that's maybe a little bit of an overstatement. I think there's truth to that to a point. I think Arson didn't know when Cock would be back. He also needed insurance for Flamini. Um, and I'm sure he, he more than open to El Nenny playing some games for us, but I always thought it was likely he'd persist with Flamini at least till this upcoming FA Cup match. I, I, I don't know why, as a manager, you'd make the fact that we're in a tough spot El Nenny's problem for his first game, where he hasn't even had minutes off the bench. So I can understand the manager being conservative and patient. And the other counterpoint is, for the first 17 minutes before the red card, we were actually playing reasonably well. Now, I'm not saying that we didn't have vulnerabilities, but you could understand why a manager might send that team out to play against Chelsea and think, as of you know, 16 minutes and 59 seconds... Uh, you know, our, our future looming ahead of us, but we don't know this at that point. 
that we're looking kind of okay and that we're playing kind of reasonable football. I certainly agree with your point. We've been on a downward decline in terms of that midfield uh, and our overall performances. I agree with that part of the setup. Within this game, I can see why he started with Flamini Ramsey. And we were doing okay, and we were doing okay afterwards in many respects. In many respects. I know there's the other side of the coin, which is you can argue this was Chelsea, and you can argue that after the big incident and Chelsea got their gold, they maybe sat back a little bit and gave us a chance to play well. But anyway, I would... I understand why the manager made that decision in terms of Flamini okay. at this point. I, I mean, it, it is the conservative choice. And yeah. I just wonder if, you know, I've read somewhere that to dare is to do. Um, you know, so it must be true because it's, it's up on a wall in a slum somewhere. Saw it in a ghetto. Um, but, but you don't necessarily want to make it the player's problem and drop him in it. And only the manager can see where the guy's at. I mean, the guy played for Basel in Switzerland. People say, oh, he played in the Champions League. Lots of people have played in the Champions League. Doesn't mean they're ready to start in the Premier League against Chelsea with all of the baggage. Uh, I, I guess the only flip side to that, Paul, is, is Matthew Flamini a good enough player and a fit enough player and, and the right player to be playing? I mean... We're not talking about... We started okay, and you can't damage him. No matter what you say about Flamini, you weren't going to harm the player psychologically, whereas you could have fucked up your El Nenny for the rest of the... for at least a period of time if he'd had a horrible experience and, you know, it didn't work out for him. The the odds that this Chelsea team was just going to completely overrun us, though, I mean, you know, people keep saying, well, it's still Chelsea, it's still Chelsea. Everybody beats them this season, so, like... I don't think you can afford to just say it's still Chelsea. Now, I know some of their results had been on the up and some of their metrics, hashtag metrics, had been improving. But, like, I, I don't know that there's a lot of safe ga- – what's a safe game in the Premier League if not home to the 16th place side? Uh, Tim, it, it sounded like I you wanted to jump. I don't safe, but I just think more time. Uh, you know, first game in the FA Cup makes a whole bunch of sense to me. Sorry, Tim. Would you agree that bringing him in in January, though, Paul? Hang on. Let's pretend Tim's not here for a second. Would you <laughs> – would you agree that bringing him in in January, which is not a time that the manager necessarily always – I know he's made some, some high-profile additions in January, but don't you think that bringing him in in January and doing it early in January, at least at some level, indicates that maybe he had it in his mind that we'll need him and we'll need him now? Yeah, but look as well. If Flamini – he started rushing to get Elneny done at the start of January in December – Flamini could have picked up an injury any time in the last four or five games, and then we're utterly yeah. fucked. So no wonder he was rushing to get him in. Once he'd got him in, he needs a, you know, he needs a, a, a game or two. He, he talked about Perez. We've all heard that speech about Perez sitting on the bench, seeing the Premier League for his first game. And he was debating whether he'd ever even put him on the bench for the first game. Then Mesut Ozil, uh, banged his toe, and Elneny is on the bench, in my theory. That's the only reason he made the first game. This is the second game. I think if he could, he would always buy him enough time to have his first start in the FA Cup. That would be my perspective. He was there for insurance initially, and then depending on his progress, yes, he may play a small or a large role uh, in the season as it develops, depending on how Cockland comes back. And Cockland's not quite back yet, so we've still got to see on that side. Yeah, Paul, Paul, I respect you, but I feel like you're missing the obvious truth staring you in the face here. Um, And not to be condescending, but like it seems pretty clear to me that the manager 
has been given stock in Flamini's pharmaceutical or biotech company or whatever it is. <laughs> and in exchange for that, he has to start him every match. But it is the I, only you know, thing that makes full sense of all the it, it makes pieces full of... sense. All right, Tim, straighten Paul out. Come on, help me out here. Um, well, the first thing I was I was just going to interject and say that uh, the name that Arsene Wenger mentioned was Edu. Um, and Edu, if you remember, had, I mean, he had a fairly rocky start to life in England anyway because he was sent home from Heathrow. Um, you might say it was a rocky debut. start to his education. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he had a nightmare debut at Leicester, came off after 45 minutes and didn't play again for three months. Now, he ended up being a good signing, but um, that, that did kind of ruffle him. Um, a little bit. The other thing I was going to say, though, was that um, Chelsea really Chelsea knew the midfield we were going to play, um, and they made a plan for it because they unusually Chelsea don't usually do this when they come to the Emirates. They pressed quite high up, even even Mikel and Matic were quite high up, which is why actually we we didn't really struggle for space in their final third. And the reason I think they did that is because they just know that we haven't got anyone to receive the ball from the centre halves. And they know that if you push up on Flamini and you push up on Ramsey a bit, you know, we haven't got a Cazorla there or an Arteta there to take the ball under pressure and recycle it. And um, they they did that very, very well, actually, I think. And I think that was a very clear part of their game plan. Um, and to put Fabregas higher up pitch um, because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really do that pressing thing, so he had a slightly freer role and actually played a bit more like Ozil usually does. So I, I think Chelsea had a plan for it, and um, I think insofar as you can actually judge this game, um, it worked. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's it, it it makes it easy, right, when you don't have that player. And, and this is the thing, it's not necessarily a flamity uh, criticism or Ramsey criticism, it's that with the two of them together, you, it's, exactly. you're missing that role. Yeah. Um, well, let's do this. Let's get to the, the game-changing moment. Once again, it's a red card. Mm. Um, you could say, once again, it's theatrics from Diego Castro. Well, well, first of all, Tim, real quick question. Very, very quick. I know there's question about whether contact was made, and it appears maybe not, but presumably you're still okay with that being a red card or no? Yeah, yeah, I am. I think um, our attitudes have kind of liberalised to play acting because actually when you really slow it down, there isn't actually any contact. And probably 10 years ago, that would have been treated as an outrageous dive. Um, but we, we see so much more gamesmanship now that we're probably just a little bit used to it and a bit jaded by it all. And therefore, that, you know, ultimately, as soon as Mertesacker goes to ground, doesn't get the ball, then, you know, it's almost like, you feel like Costa then has a choice between running through on goal or going down and effectively you give him not quite the right to that choice, but certainly you give him uh, the opportunity to make it. And I had no problem with it at the time. It's not an obvious dive. Um, and basically, I don't think there's a referee in the world that wouldn't have given a red card um, yeah. right there. What I do think is that I think Arsenal could, could have created quite a lot more pressure on the referee. I thought it was a fait accompli. Chelsea, as they do, got four or five players around the referee. All the Arsenal players just walked off and Mertesacker started walking off. 
And I do you think that's like a lack of character, though? Or do you think that was a, oh, shit, here we go again. They knew what was happening. I mean, like, it almost seemed like a, a gut punch to the, to the fans, to the players. I don't think it's like a character thing. I do think we're, we're very nice boys. Um, and, you know, you saw it as well when Costa went off. Costa, you know, he was legitimately injured. It was the shin he'd hurt. But, you know, he knew his number was coming up. And so he went down and he wasted two minutes and everyone could see it, that he was wasting time. He was doing it deliberately. You know, he like sarcastically waves at the crowd on the way off and there's nothing particularly wrong. With and we that. give the ball right but, back you know, to the keeper. But then, yeah, and we watch him do it and then we gently roll the ball back to their goalkeeper. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to shout, say I was shouting, I was yelling, corner flag it, put it in the corner flag. He is taking the piss out of you, put it in the corner flag and then go and put them under pressure. And um, Chelsea have formed for that. They've done that to us before. And they absolutely should have done that. It's not just that we don't have that kind of gamesmanship edge. We help teams do it to us. And it infuriates me the amount of times we kick the ball out of play for players who clearly aren't injured. And uh, we didn't on that occasion. Chelsea kicked it out. But, you know, even just like gently rolling the ball back to the goalkeeper after this guy's been wasting your time for two minutes... And you know it's it's preposterous, really. I, th- I think I think they've really got to kind of toughen up. But the reason I don't think we have that is because Arsenal, you know, not too long ago had a few spikier characters in the team, and um, you know it it didn't do wonders for team spirit, and it all fell apart a bit. And they've opted, I think, understandably, for nicer boys, so Harmony. they all get on. But yeah, yeah, but. At the same time, I, I do think we've lost a little something there. And I think in that situation, as soon as Mertesacker makes that tackle, and he'd have, don't get me wrong, like morally, he'd have been wrong to do this. I'd have been over Costa because he knows he doesn't touch him. I'd have been yeah, over Costa. I'd making have been the dive symbol. Exactly. I'd have had you know, three players up in, uh, at the ref. And even, even if it doesn't work, you at least create the doubt for the next decision. So when you've got um, Mikel clotheslining Alexis Sanchez off the ball. Now, I don't think that was a red card, but the crowd really, really got behind the kind of, you know, started chanting off, off, off. Not a single Arsenal player went up to the referee. And I think that if you pressure him on the first decision and then you get a couple of players around him on that one, I think he might have done it. I think he might have sent him off. And I think the crowd might have just created that all. Did he catch him? And But then no Arsenal players respond and... He thinks, oh, well, no, probably not. So, no, I, you know, it was a red card, but I, I was kind of disappointed in the way we handled it in that respect. Fair enough. I, the red card leads to two other interesting debate topics, one of which is the, the substitution after, which we'll get to in a moment. But, Paul, first, we really need to get back to blaming our players. Uh, so rank for me the blame, oh, a portion of the... A, Apportion the blame on the red card and rank it in the following order. It, it, well, sorry, rank it in whatever order you see for the four following players: Flamini, Ramsey, Koscielny, Murtasek. Who do you have most, to, least, least blame to most blame? Least blame. Uh, I've stumped him, folks. I'm going to go most blame. That's easy, Murtasekker. Uh, Why don't you answer the question as it was asked? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm going to answer it in reverse order, as you asked Fine. it in reverse Fine. order. Reversing your reverse order. Uh, Ramsey next, letting mm-hmm. so William... So Murtisacker, then Ramsey. 
Yeah, letting William dance past him, and he let William dance past him just before the goal in the build-up to the goal. That was two in a row. He also, uh, by the way, jogged back after. He, he, he pulled his best Danielson impression in that moment. Mm. <laughs> and then Koscielny, you know, n- not too much to say about him. I think, say what you like about Flamini, he was in the DM spot. He backed off. He just off. kept dropping and dropping. And he dropping. did, but we should not underestimate just how good Willian is. He would have buried him had... had uh, Maybe Fl- he could have done one of his two-foot specials there. I probably wouldn't have got either foot anywhere near him. I mean, there's a reason uh, Willian went past Ramsey. He's bloody skillful. He's bloody quick. So hey, can, I, can I make player. an argument, though, yeah. with all his experience? Isn't this maybe the you just put two arms around him and hold him and take your yellow card and nod to the ref and the uh, moment pass? I, I mean, think you, you run up to him, you grab him, you see the danger before it happens. I think know? he would have struggled to – he'd have to do something pretty extreme to get him because Willian – Willian was coming at him from distance at speed. All right, so your boyfriend isn't to blame. Koscielny then is after that? Uh, at least. I think him and Koscielny are about the same. I don't think either of them did that much wrong, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'm going to come back to you for the substitution question, but I just want to get Tim's rankings. Tim, do you agree with those rankings? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's a ball that's cut us open before, isn't it? Think of Gomez going through on goal for Swansea, for example. Carbon do copy. I have to? Koscielny um, doesn't push up, Ramsey doesn't put enough pressure on Willian, Flamini's not really anywhere to influence the game at that point. And, you know, Mertesacker, and, uh, you know, think of uh, Jamie Vardy's first goal for Leicester um, Mm. in September. Again, carbon copy, Mertesacker, once you're in behind him, he's not catching you. Um, So there's fairly equal amounts of blame. I'd probably put slightly less on Flamini. I'd probably go Mertesacker, Ramsey, Koscielny, mm-hmm. Flamini in that order. Yeah, I mean, Mertesacker, the problem is he takes up a really bad position on Costa, then makes the bad decision to go to ground. And the interesting thing about Mertesacker is he really is a player who stays on his feet. He doesn't get a lot of cards. He doesn't give away a lot of fouls. His career has been marked by making good decisions in the tackle. And I, I guess I just... You know, I, I've read that in the heat of the moment, you can't blame a player for going to ground there. But I don't. You know, I, I think this is again what you get with a, a player who doesn't have pace, who has to play up higher up the pitch. Which is, you put him in a really tough position playing that way. Which is, he knows he can't run with Costa, so he either goes to ground there, or Costa's through. Um, he doesn't really have a good other option. The option of I'm just going to run as fast as I can in a straight line back towards my keeper and hope to make it tough on cost for, for Bernasecker. That's not an option. Um, all right, so, Paul, Giroud gets subbed off. He didn't like it. The fans didn't like it. He's French. Uh, I'm going to give you Calvin Masterson's question from Twitter, at Calvin Masterson. Does anyone have a reason for why Arsene Wenger played Theo left and Ozil at false nine after the red? Um, sure. So what, what's the reason? I don't think he played Ozil as false nine. I think Ozil just did what He played Ozil Flamini did. at false nine. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, one of the things I did not want to see was Giroud banging up against two centre-backs for the whole of the second half and the rest of the first half because Chelsea would have absolutely bloody loved that. So I fully understand picking Walcott. I understand why Walcott then didn't stand in the middle of the pitch next to the centre-backs banging up against them all game because as we saw 
uh, he was unable to hold up the ball in front of the two centre-backs who would have absolutely loved it and given him grief for the whole game. So, um, really, Walcott very quickly decided the only place he was going to have mm-hmm. success was over on the left wing. And he did. He had a, there were a lot of near misses. He didn't have a great game, mostly because he was offside too much. Um, and, you know, I think people think offside's a really simple thing to get right, but you're timing two things. You're timing the eyes from the guy who's passing you the ball, and you're timing your run against uh, a defense that's moving up, and you're probably starting off in an offside position. So without getting into too much of a defense of Theo, he didn't have a particularly good game. He did spill the game, the ball a number of times. He had probably three, four, five opportunities for runs in behind that if the ball or the timing had been just right from his left side, it made, to me, it made a lot of sense for Campbell and Walcott to uh, stay wide. We had plenty of chances in the end. Uh, Not that many shots on goal, but enough opportunities. A number of occasions when the ball was bouncing around in the the penalty box where somebody just needed to get a boot on it. Uh, you know, you can well, quit. Chelsea, Chelsea were pretty bad, frankly. I mean, especially with te- with the man advantage. I mean, we we still, I felt, ran the game. I think we ran the game as it was, and therefore, a an endorsement of the way we played it, or or how we set up tactically. And I mean, I, I think I've said a few times, the one thing I don't want to see is Giroud stuck banging up against two centre backs, as we've seen so many times before. He needs movement around him. And if you take Walcott off or Campbell off, I think you're just absolutely playing into a, a situation where Chelsea would love to have Terry and Zuma but, just banging but, up against Giroud for 70 minutes. Yeah, no, I see that. But isn't that where we also talk about partnerships and partnerships that work effectively? For example, we've talked about Theo working better with Asante, Coughlin, Ozil, Alexis kind of lineup. But the way Ramsey likes to make those forward runs, and Flamini was making forward runs, Giroud is sort of a fulcrum around which they could pivot and, and make those runs. I mean, we've talked a lot about how Ramsey really seems to, to dovetail nicely with Giroud. I just think, you know, the Ramsey-Cochlin midfield, uh, pardon me, Ramsey-Flamini midfield, I don't know, is as suited to keeping Theo and Campbell on instead. But let me ask you this, Tim. Uh, could I just... Could yep. I just quickly say on that, though, that implies a normal progressive move through midfield, but clearly we were going to have to counterattack. We were going to, weren't going to have loads of those positions where you got Giroud yes. and Ramsey and we're all neatly in position. We were likely to have to break from deep, and that's why Theo made sense and Giroud didn't. So, y- Yes, which is, which is what my question for you is, Tim, is then if Arsene Menger could have seen the future and see that Chelsea was mm. going to get a goal shortly after the substitution... One nil down, do you think he, he leaves Giroud on and takes Theo or Campbell off? I do, yeah. Um, I do, actually. Um, I think, you know, if Mertesacker makes that foul 15 yards forward and it's a penalty and it's a red card penalty one now, I, I think he might have kept Giroud on. I think um, I, I listened to the uh, the Times podcast earlier this week and uh, Rory Smith was on it and I thought he nailed it on this when they asked, you know, about the, the, the substitution and he said, I think, People get too obsessed with what the wrong and right decision is. He was saying, in this scenario, there is no right decision. You have Amen, to make the least, the least wrong decision because there's a good reason to keep all of those players on. 
Um, at nil nil, it made perfect sense to keep Joel Campbell on. He's def- you know he helps his fullback. Um, he can hit a through ball as well. Um, you know, well, you, you presume you're going to be pinned back more and that you're going to be, you yeah. know, Chelsea might take the initiative and now you can play a little more on the counter because it's still nil-nil. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think if we're one nil down when he makes the sub, I think he might have kept Giroud on. Incidentally, the, the, the player I was most, I think, disappointed in was Ozil. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason for that... I know he was kind of halfway between playing false nine and in his usual role. I think he was the only one who didn't adapt to the situation. And, you know, because Ozil is Ozil and he's amazing and he's talented and he's creative, he operates a little bit outside of, you know, the system um, that Arsenal play. And actually, he does cause it a few problems in terms of, particularly when we've got Ramsey and Flamini, in terms of he's not very great defensively he's not great physically and actually that exposes when you've got two centre mids that don't really work together that's exposed but he's so good that he makes up for that in this scenario I maybe he was a little bit lost between trying to play two roles at once but I felt like he was still trying to play the game as if it was 11 v 11 and he was still trying to play with freedom and do certain things which when you're a goal down and you're a man down against a team, a physical team like Chelsea. I don't think he adapted his game to the scenario or to the environment. I think he just carried on trying to play the game he enjoys playing rather than the game that the team needed him to play. And the reason they'd have, you know, tried to make him play that kind of false nine role was because, you know, you've got Campbell and you've got Walcott. These are the guys who are going to score you a goal. And who's going to find them? You know, Mesut Ozil is, and so you know he was probably kept on a because he can hold the ball um, in centre forward positions ish. So in lieu of Giroud, you've got someone who, in a different way, can you know give your defence a breather. I don't think he really did that. Um, I think he was still trying to be a little bit too cute. And uh, I, yeah, I think he was the one that actually dis- ended up disappointing me most. And if you can see into the future, um, I think given the respective performances, I wouldn't have done it at the time. But in hindsight, it's Ozil I'd have taken off. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think you you need, you don't have, he is definitely our luxury player in the side who has the freedom to roam and find space and, you know, use his vision and his technical ability to, create opportunities for his teammates and for himself with his forward running, which has become more a part of his game. But in a game that's going to require a lot more tactical discipline and grit where you kind of have to tough it out and you're scrapping, especially for an equalizer. I don't know that you can afford to have another player on the pitch who kind of gets to go wherever he wants, especially considering Ramsey kind of has adopted a similar uh, sense of his role in midfield. Um, Let's get to their goal because that's fun. Uh, Paul, I think Koscielny didn't exactly cover himself in glory, and I think you could argue that Koscielny is maybe not in his best run of form. So mm. for their goal, Koscielny most at fault for you, and are you at least a little concerned with, with the way Koscielny's played recently? Uh, I agree with most of that. I'd, I, I'd put it on Gabriel, which is harsh because he just came on. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I felt that was Gabriel 
had sight of him. Uh, he had nobody else to be watching. And somebody needed to make that run inside of him. Uh, obviously, Koscielny maybe could have been more aware and taken a better position. You've also got Flamini running across the six-yard box, maybe creating a little confusion, especially for Koscielny. Um, so, you know, I'm not a, a a defensive coach. I don't think any of us on the line are, but... Uh, I am, but it's fine. Keep yeah, on. okay. So I, I bow to your superior what's-its, but... I'd go with I'd go with Gabrielle and and that largely probably down to confusion and the fact that suddenly here he is right in against his nemesis and he he's just not synced in to the the energy the flow of those moments. I mean those things happen in a you know a fraction of a fraction of a second. So if you're not in sync with where things are going, that happens and I think that's what happened. Yeah. Tim, I mean, is that is that your feeling? I mean, what what do you think about Koscielny, his part, his role in the goal they scored, and and sort of his very recent form? I, I think um, I think it was I divvy up uh, between Koscielny and Gabriel there. I think um, certainly Gabriel's just come on, um, and this happened against Norwich as well. Mm. Um, in fact, we've had a couple of goals conceded like this this season at West Brom. Cockerlin comes off. We concede twice because we haven't quite sorted ourselves out. Norwich, Koscielny goes off injured. Gabriel's first involvement in the game, he's not quite in it, and they score. That kind of happened here as well. Probably also a symptom of the fact that Koscielny and Gabriel still can't really talk to one another. Um, so there's probably a lack of communication. I, I think that it was slightly more Gabriel's fault, as it were, but... At the same time, I would expect Koscielny to think, right, he's just come on. Um, maybe I should take the initiative for a couple of minutes. Um, I also think there's something to be said about Ramsey. Again, letting William skip past him mm. and uh, him just like dangling a leg, uh, Denilson-esque. So it, it's kind of a tough one. And we've seen it a couple of times this season where we get a defensive you know, a change in the defensive setup, and we concede immediately. Uh, with regards to Koscielny, to be honest, I don't think he's been great all season, mm. um, if I'm honest with you. You know, he had a difficult start. Um, if you remember against West Ham and against Palace, he didn't get out and close down very well. I think he's contributed a little bit to Pear being exposed because he's not kept the line in um, perhaps, you know, as... as, as it, emphatic a manner as, as he should have um, so yeah I, I don't think this is his best season he's, he's not been terrible by any means but I, I think it's kind of a continuation of, uh, of what we've seen most of the season to be quite honest yeah I think that's fair um, so then let's just quickly touch on how the rest of the game played out because I want to talk about the larger ramifications but um, Tim, let's just stay with you for a second. I mean, in general, I thought the depressing part is that Chelsea really wasn't very good. They were there for the taking. Um, you know, I've seen some complimentary stuff said about how we played up a man. Um, do you think we did much well? Do you think Chelsea was just very mediocre? What were your feelings about the way we played in general? I mean, the only chances we had in the match really fell to Flamini, which is not ideal. Yeah, I, I think Chelsea were quite mediocre. And um, I think at 1-0, they were just fairly happy to sit on it. Um, I thought Chelsea were pretty good in the first half, even before the red card. I thought in the second half, they completely dropped off. And to me, it didn't quite look like, you know, the Arsenal-Chelsea games of old, where 
<clears throat> you know, it's just like um, a guy, a six foot guy, putting his hand on the forehead of a midget while the midget swings <laughs> away. You know, it, it didn't look like that to me at all. And, you know, v- Wenger said after the game, didn't he, it looked like there was room to beat Chelsea 11 v 11. And I totally agree. It, it looked to me that an extra player, I think we probably would have won it. But as to what we did well, well, you know, we didn't completely collapse, <laughs> which is something, I guess. Um, I, I just, I don't really think there's an awful lot you can Sweet. read into it. Um, to be honest with you, I, I just, when a player gets sent off after 20 minutes and the other team scores straight away, I, I don't think there's, there's that much to read into it. Um, but yeah, I thought we were yeah. okay. They were, they did enough and not much more. And that was that really. Paul, we often look at matches in the context of the season, but sometimes they just have a meaning in and of themselves. Chelsea has been a, a, a bogey side for us, and I know we did win the Community Shield, but how disappointed are you that in a season where they have been the comedy car crash club of the league, we have managed to take precisely zero points and play with 10 men for about 80% of the, uh, the two matches? I mean, how, how much of a disappointment is this for you? Well, it's massively frustrating, uh, them of all. Uh, fortunately, they're not in the chase for the Premier League, so it's not a six-point swing in the top of the table like it is most other times. So there's some consolation. If, if you were going to fuck up against Chelsea, this is probably the season to do it. I think in general we should dial into our Chelsea fixtures getting zero or one point from them in both ties for the foreseeable future until Arsenal prove otherwise. And it's it's just massively, it's so classically Arsenal. On the other hand, the other thing that's classically Arsenal is having a big fuck-up and then bouncing back and going on a run. So I'm kind of hoping that Arsenal that's so classic is about to kick in next as the cavalry mm-hmm. comes back. I think the players, us, uh, even a lot of the commentators are have and pundits have said something pretty similar, which is, yeah, it's a big deal, but it's not that big a deal. Uh, in the end, it depends on how we respond, and we have a lot of players coming back, and this midfield was running out of gas, and so you can balance it either way. Uh, if you asked me straight after the game, I was I had the razor blades out, but as I communicated to you midweek, the longer we put off the pod, the more I was confident that we actually beat Chelsea, got three points, and are well on our way to winning the Premier League, so time cures everything. Well, well on our way to winning the Premier League is uh, maybe a positive spin on things. I like to think um, so. Yeah, all right. Uh, l- l- let me ask you this, Tim. Uh, w- you know, we-, we had a terrible November. I get that. But let's say just for a second we don't go on to win the Premier League. I think we're going to look back on this three-game stretch just just for a second, Paul, um, of – a point at and I'd say a bad point at Anfield, an okay point at Stoke, and a bad no points home to Chelsea. And we're to look at this being a very damaging period. I think this is also the month January where the not to joke around. We joke around a little bit about advanced metrics, but I think the the advanced data stuff can can be really interesting. And for a long time, it had Arsenal winning the league. Projections had Arsenal winning the league. All the statistical models. But our expected goals for have declined, our expected goals against have risen, and a lot of the models, most of them really, now have City winning the league ahead of Arsenal, and that's really happened over the last three, four games. Um, 
you know, I know it's always easy to point to injuries, but and this is this is a long uh, and winding path to get to a question, so I apologize. But you know, we we put ourselves in a position where we really had a dysfunctional midfield for the majority of January. How damaging do you think this last little run has been, and how frustrated are you that we put ourselves in this position in the first place? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, if you drop seven points out of nine and you're going for the league, then that's that's damaging. Um, <clears throat> the only thing I'd say... Well, when is... you put it like that, it seems obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. The, the only thing I'd say is at least I can see why it's happened, and I don't think it's it's kind of been in the post, um, maybe, for the last kind of few weeks or so. Um, the the mini period that I look at more is um, the away games at Norwich and West Brom in quick succession because we took one point out of those two, and given the away games we got left, that's that's not a good return from those two games at all. Um, and we had most of our attacking players. Um, then we didn't really have this big injury crisis at the time, so I kind of look upon that as more damaging um, or certainly more baffling this I can kind of understand um, I think we you know you, you look at the new, that Newcastle game a couple of weeks ago where we really struggled to a 1-0 against a very poor Newcastle side and um, and you can see that this has been coming really um, the kind of the positive it is that it looks like you know the cavalry is beginning to come back so Rosicki and Coquelin we're told are in the squad for Saturday you know, well back to training again, and you know, it, it at least you can kind of see it alleviating um, a little bit, um, and hopefully those, you know, those guys really kind of. I want to think of a better phrase than owe us, but their absences have left us really short um, for a little while. So some of those guys, particularly, have been out for the whole season. You know should really be kind of raring to go and really be thinking, you know, I hope they've been sitting there thinking, oh, God, like, you know, straining at the leash to come and help. Um, and that, that hopefully amends any lack of kind of match fitness or sharpness they might might have. Because basically at the moment, a lot of our players have whatever the opposite of a lack of match sharpness is in terms yeah. of they're just playing every week and not playing particularly well and, we need to break up that cycle somehow. And the game against Burnley, I think, could be very useful in terms of giving some players a game. Whether Arteta's got it in him to start the game, I'm sure Elneny will. Um, you know, Alexis will get minutes. Rosicki, I'm sure, will get minutes from the bench. Coquelin will get minutes one way or another. So, And actually, something we'll be able to have again is a decent bench. Um, with some options on it and not only options to help you change a game but options to help you hold on to a game um, and you know options to, to kind of not just operation bring on all the fullbacks when we're 1-0 up and, and and you know hope that we can hold out the guys that can actually control the game a little bit and try and dictate it so that's that's kind of the positive in terms of we you know we've really just just been getting by and now we can't really get by anymore. But, you know, that kind of little bit of sunshine is peeking through the cloud, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think it's pretty clear that getting players back is the only way we get back on track. Because to me, you know, we sort of kind of made do 
with the players we had available for a little while. But we were never playing well. And all the while, I mean, we, we were just about getting by, and now we're not getting by at all. I, I think the part that really does my head in a little bit is just that if I told you, you know, the euphoria of the FA Cup dying down, it's June, we're excited about a big summer, we really think we should be genuinely challenging for the title in 2015-16, and I told you, hey, look, we're not only going to be starting Joel Campbell every single match, we're going to be starting Matthew Flamini every single match during key runs in this upcoming season. You'd say, well, first of all, it's not possible because those players aren't really a part of our plans for next season, and we're going to add appropriately at those positions. And the second thing you'd say is, you know, if that is the case, then we haven't built our squad appropriately. Now, you can say, well, that's unfair to Joel Campbell. He's really stepped up and been pretty good. Well, that's okay. I mean, maybe he really has. I mean, I think we can debate just how good he's been, but there's no question he's, he's stepped up more than we expected. But the fact that Matthew Flamini is starting every single game at this stage of his career and his ability just isn't appropriate. And the Ramsey Flamini midfield doesn't work. And then in January, we do go out and bring a guy in. But for whatever reason, whether what we're seeing in training or, you know, our general opinion of him, he's not ready to just jump into the fray so he can't help us. So, like, we kind of sort of tried to fix the error of our summer ways, but certainly not in any time to prevent us from dropping points. And I just, you know, everybody tore each other limb from limb after the summer, yelling and screaming about our summer business. Some people saying, you know, the players weren't there who could improve us. And some people saying there's always players who can improve us. But at the end of the day, everybody knew we probably needed to add a central midfielder. And we didn't. And it's cost us. And, it, you know, at some point, the chickens come home to roost, right? I mean, I, I'll stop going on a monologue here and, and turn it back over to you, Paul. But, like, I do think when we had this argument after the summer, the argument was not buying a central midfielder. This this league feels winnable, and it feels like no time like the present to win it. And it would be very unfortunate if the position we clearly needed to fortify, that we clearly didn't fortify, winds up being the position that leads to a bad run of form, that leads to not winning the league. We had, we had mentioned uh, the statistical models not liking Arsenal as much now, Paul. Yeah. I, I know you wanted to respond to that. Yeah, just, just pretty – sometimes the statistical models tell you something your eyes don't see. And sometimes they don't. And for a while they were telling us, especially last season early on, they were telling us we were better than our points total. And this season early on they were telling us uh, we were in pretty good nick in terms of creating and defending. And it turned out that there was some mileage to that. I think a lot of us were distracted by the West Ham result and uh, you know one or two other somewhat dodgy results. And the statistics said we were good. And we were good. And we came through. Right now, the statistics say our shots are dropping off and we're conceding. Well, yeah, duh. Uh, and we know why. What the statistical models don't do very well, and they're f the first ones to admit, is they don't account for injuries and personnel changes particularly well. And so they're not very good at being forward-looking. So we could have seen that there was going to be a statistical uh, model reflecting the fact we were hitting a bad patch now. And we'd like to anticipate with the new players back, guess what's likely to happen to the statistical models? They'll start telling us what our eyes and our results are hopefully starting to see, which is we're starting to play better, uh, create more chances, be more secure in midfield. So sometimes the statistical models just tell you what you're seeing. Yeah, okay. How much frustration do you have, Paul, that we, that we didn't have 
the central midfield options that we probably should have going into the season. Lots. Uh, I mean, I was definitely one who said, uh, if it were me, I'd be buying a CM, DM of some variety. There must be one out there somewhere. I'm sorry, there are literally thousands of players. Well, there's El Nenny. There's I mean, El Nenny. If we can get him now, is it possible we could have gotten him in the summer and been using him during this period? Yeah, and if he's not quite ready now, per my my theory, then that's why you get him last summer. I mean, I'm sure he w- would have loved to have come to Arsenal with the doing the Gabriel thing and kind of taking the first season to get acclimated, play a few games when we needed him. So he would have made lots of sense during the summer. Uh, obviously, Arson plumped for cohesion and and players staying fit. He was very unlucky that it was Coquelin and Cazorla at the same time, the two central midfielders, but it ain't that unlucky when you're talking about Arsenal. Um, you wouldn't have got a huge bet from the bookies that that couldn't happen. Um, so we could have done Anel Nenny or even El Nenny himself during the summer. And I wouldn't have said, no, no, Arson, you're overstocking our squad. How could you possibly do that? Because he's, I think, 23. Uh, he would be patient. He could see his future at Arsenal. Uh, and El Nenny would have made loads of sense during the summer. But there you go. Yeah. All right. Tim, I mean, for you, is there any frustration as we sit here now, still in a very good position to be able to win the league, but looking at a period where we've been really, really rocky, saying... We probably could have eked more points out of January, and maybe the points we needed to win the league were available in January had we fortified in an area that everybody really saw we needed to. Um, maybe a bit. I, t- I, I tend to think we look at this kind of thing a bit, you know, um, in a kind of polemic fashion uh, when it comes to transfers. I, I don't think Arsene Wenger ever makes a conscious decision not to sign players, if that makes sense. Um, no, I think that's fair. expand on that a little bit. Like, I don't think he goes, do you know what, we don't need a midfielder, I'm not signing one. I think it's, could, whether, whether he's... Couldn't his methodology be such that it leads him more to not buying yeah. than buying because of the rigorous standards he's set up for himself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe there's an argument that he's not... Kind of proactive enough, and it's a bit, um, it's a bit Goldilocks kind of thing. And uh, you know, if one comes up, um, he'll go for him. Like for example, I saw the title of an article today, um, and I didn't read the article because the title completely put me off. It just said why Wenger is right not to sign a striker in January. And I thought to myself, do you honestly think if a really good striker became available, he wouldn't be having a little bit of that? Like, let's say in complete la-la land, Luis Suarez is available again for £40 million in January. Do you think he's going to sit there and go, no, I don't need a striker? You know, like, I'm... I, I, I think, think he's always find, open. he would go all the way to £40 million and one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what, and what is that if it's not, you know, um, proactive? But, you know, whether whether he's proactive enough, like, you know, I think that's that's a fair question, but... I don't think he ever makes the conscious decision not to sign someone. I think in any position, no matter how well stocked he is, if a good player comes up, he goes for him. Um, you know, I remember when we bought Bakary Sanya, we had two right backs that people were quite happy with, and I'm like, why is he buying this guy? Well, because he's better than the two we've got, and I, you know, he he has he has form for that definitely of just going for a player when they come up. So, I mean. 
I get that um, that you know people wanted another midfielder. I always just I did wonder if he'd just not seen one that he liked um, quite genuinely. Um, whether he could have gone for El Nenny and and if Paul's right and El Nenny has just been signed as backup to Flamini, then you know maybe he didn't want to go for that in the summer when yeah he, he probably should have but. You know, he's been trying to buy a defensive midfielder for a number of years. He bid for Lars Bender in 2013. Um, so it's not, he hasn't just been going, uh, well, no, we don't need anyone there. Uh, I just don't think he really found anybody. I, um, I would just say this, Tim, because I don't <clears throat> disagree with you, but I think if you look at Stryker, for example, you have Giroud, yeah. you have Theo Walcott, you have Denny Welbeck, I mean, at some point, Alexis could arguably play there. I mean, you look at the, the more holding role in central midfield, and it really is Coughlin, a totally unfit and unable to play 90 minutes Arteta, and a guy yeah. in Flamini who is really clinging to the last Indian summer of his career. I mean, yeah. so it's a slightly different situation. It's, right? it's unsatisfactory. So for, for a team that's going for the league, that, yeah, that is unsatisfactory. That's my point. That, by the way, I, I want to say something, right? I think we've gone for fourth place as a trophy for so long and I'm not I don't mean that in a divisive or angry way. I just think mm. we've been happy with fourth place for so long where we didn't feel we could compete that I sometimes think people's barometer their their compass of what a title winning team does to win a title is off. Yeah. You know when people say oh one point at Anfield's a good point or one point at Stoke is a good point yeah, or yeah, yeah. you know we had good players like you have to adjust your metrics when the goal is to win the most competitive league in the world. Absolutely and I I went on the Arsenal America podcast last week with uh, Mr. Clark from Arsenal Mouse, and I uh, made exactly this point. I was asked whether Chelsea's a must-win game, and I made the argument: when you're going for the league, they're all must-win games. And I think people trip themselves up going, "Oh, but if we get this many points before the end yeah. of the season, so if we win seven and draw four, no, like champions don't think like that. They just go, if you're going to be champions, right? You're going to be the best team in England, so you go to every in single every game." game. And you go, we're better than them. We'll beat them. Um, and, I th- and, and you're right. I think too many people trip themselves up with, you know, projected predictions and points totals and stuff. And, and I totally agree. No, you go and you try. You go win every game. Now, obviously, you might come out and think, well, yeah, okay. In the, in the circumstances, that wasn't a bad draw. But uh, you know, no. When, uh, when you when you're going for the league, you want to win every single game. And you know. The players should regard that as a challenge and one that is totally befitting of a team chasing the league. And I think the supporters should enjoy that as well. That's the fun of being in the title race. The fun is, you know, going in needing to win every single game. The fun is watching your rivals and cheering for the teams that are playing against your rivals as much as you cheer for your own team. That's all part of the fun. We should all embrace that absolutely totally. Uh, and so should the players and the manager. Yeah, and and you know what? Like, I, I'll take a title with fifty-seven points. Like, it's fine. Yeah. But it would yeah. be really nice to like catch form, step on some teams' throats, and look like a real champion. I'm not saying there'd be an asterisk next to it if we won it with seventy-two points. I'm just saying there is something about playing well. I mean, we played terribly in November. We played terribly in January. Like. How many months of playing terribly do you need before you say, good God, this title challenge season isn't really as fun as I thought it would be? Um, Paul, l- let's let's wrap up. I mean, for you, 
where where do you see the, the title bid going now? With a reminder that we still go to City, go to Spurs, go to West Ham, go to Everton, which admittedly doesn't look as tough as it may have, go to Old Trafford. I mean, these points that were considered good one points in January may not feel so good with the, the upcoming fixtures. How dented is your optimism from the stretch we're coming off of, if uh, at all? Eh, no, it's it's definitely had a had a dent in it in the way, you know, you park your car, you come back and somebody seems to have put a dent in your fender. It's, it's kind of it's there and your heart sinks. So it it definitely has had a significant impact. That said, I agree with everything you guys have just been saying. The converse of that is now is the time, you know. It's great. We spotted Leicester at three-point lead. We're neck and neck with City. We got some big teams we have to play away from home. Uh, guess what? There's a good chance we're going to actually have to play good football and beat big teams to win this thing. I also, yeah, yeah. I also agree we don't really feel like or look like a team that has a championship mentality yet. Um, and now would be a good time to grow it, display it and start playing with a bit of swagger. So if the players come back, if we start doing what we did before, I think we can get that. Uh, and if they don't, well, we don't really deserve this league. I'll take it under any circumstances, but uh, as we're in the wishing game, that's, that's, that's what I'm hoping to see. I'm ho- hoping to see we respond, we get some players back, we start getting our swagger back, we start playing our best football and we start beating some of these teams and looking like a team that at least in the last third of the season, we've had a little over a third to go. Um, you know, if you're going to have a good third to your season, let it be the last third. That'll shut everybody up when we get to the summer, saying that we didn't deserve it or it was given to us by default. We're actually going to have to go out and win this thing unless yeah. it continues to be a really screwy league. And I, I think somebody's going to step up. I know I know we're running a little long, but I do want to get to one other quick thing because I actually think um, I actually think it's a really good question because I've been a little bit critical of Ramsey and his admirers on Twitter have torn me limb from limb, but only because I think that in a two-man midfield he he's not necessarily as disciplined um, tactically as as he needs to be, especially with someone like Flamini who can't cover the ground that maybe a Coughlin can. So Benjamin at Ben Venceramos on Twitter asks feasible front six cock elneny campbell sanchez ramsey ozel question mark tim real quick with cocklin back let's just say he's back poof he's back mm-hmm. slight thought to go with a cock elneny central midfield and move ramsey back to that right wide forward position where he was effective earlier in the season or do you think it'll just default to cocklin and ramsey um i think it will default to cocklin and ramsey so who's playing up front in that in that front um, six. In his hypothetical, it's there's no true striker. It's uh, Coughlin and Elneny with yeah. Campbell and Sanchez kind of wide and Ramsey and Ozil almost like false false nine position. I guess you would say um, Campbell, Ozil, and Sanchez, or Campbell, Ramsey, and Sanchez ahead of a false nine in Ozil. Yeah. I, the, the kind of the false nine thing, I think, only works in very particular circumstances I, you know I think you've got to have either Giroud or Walcott um, up front and you know the the weird thing about this team is it's such a delicate chain because you take one link out and you know if you ask me what my favourite forward line is I prefer us with Walcott through the middle with you know playing with Alexis 
but to the point you make, that really only works with Ramsey, Wide and Cazorla in central midfield. So then what do you do? Um, and I probably think if you're going to have Ramsey in central midfield, you need Giroud up front. And that actually the triangle of Ramsey, Ozil and Giroud is, is a very good one from an attacking point of view. Um, but then Ramsey needs the right partner in defensive midfield. And I don't think he lacks discipline. And actually since the Liverpool game, I think he's been superbly disciplined. It's just he doesn't fit with Flamini, even defensively. Um, Is so that I just think, because there's no one to collect the ball from deep and bring the ball through midfield? Yeah, yeah. He he need he needs. So he did do know, quite a bit of it against Chelsea for the first time, did. didn't he? He did, and he and moved. And I think that was that why Flamini left. ended up being centre forward so often. Um, yeah, yeah. Because he got yeah. hit for that a lot, but I didn't see Flamini make a run where he shouldn't have made it. And uh, better to have somebody there to receive the ball than nobody. I didn't have too much of a problem with it, but yeah. I did think... I, and Ramsey, I think my, Ramsey moved to the left of that partnership yeah. as well. Yes. I, I think my argument, you guys, is just that if you have a run of form where you look really, really good and you're playing really, really well, you try to recreate as much of that as possible. And so if you say, okay, at our best, we had Cazorla, Coughlin, Ozil, Ramsey, Theo, Alexis. I can recreate all of that except Cazorla yep. by bringing El Nenny in yeah. for, for, for Cazorla. And, you know, I, I'll admit I don't know the player well, but from what I've heard, he's not purely a destroyer. You know, he has technical ability. I mean, and Tim, I'll, I'll, I'll let you just finish up the thought and then Paul, quick final thought on that. Like, isn't there an argument for trying that, for saying I've got five of the front six that were so effective so I'm going to try to recreate that with the most minimal disruption? Yes, but then it depends on, you know, if, if you're telling me we're playing without Giroud and Walker up front, I think that's a huge disruption um, to the structure and you're trying to do something completely different. I think in an ideal world, um, El Nenny partners Ramsey at home and Coquelin plays away games and home games against big teams. So that's to say... In games where we're prepared to have less than 50% of the ball, you've got to play a Coquelin. Um, and in the other games, El Nenny and Ramsey. That said, Coquelin really started to improve, I think, in the kind of whole receiving and passing the ball thing. And um, I think I, I think definitely it will default to Coquelin and Ramsey and that basically both of them, uh, Coquelin's going to have to continue that improvement and improve even more. And, you know, Ramsey, they're, they're both going to have to, like, perhaps just a little bit, perhaps 10% each, do something that's not absolutely their natural game. I think they'll get the chance to do that. It may take a couple of games, but um, I think that's what's going to happen. And I think that from Wenger's point of view, that's what disrupts the structure the least. Okay, interesting. I, I think there's at least a, a small chance we'll see an El Nenny Coughlin central midfield pairing as a really strong base for which those more attacking players can have a little freedom and get after um, yeah. opposition defenses, especially on the counterattack. Um, all right, Paul, let's finish with this. We'll get to the transfer section now. Who do you see us going at? No, I'm just kidding. Can you imagine? <laughs> you got the wrong man here. We're not signing anybody. Yeah, no. Um, all right, unless you want to add on that midfield pairing, I think we can leave it there. What are your thoughts, Paul? I do, actually. Um, I agree okay. with what Tim said. I think the reality is, unless you have a natural yin and yang pairing, and we don't have that, 
then all you can do is kind of trial and error. You, you can overanalyze it, but the players need to get their chance to continue to evolve. The problem with Flamini and Ramsey is one of them has absolutely hit the ability of what he can evolve to. Flamini, as you know, I think Flamini's doing very well for what Flamini can do, but this is all he can do. He's not that yes. fast. He's not that mobile. He's, he's an okay passer. He makes runs forward from time to time. Occasionally, he, he lurries one in the back of the net. That, he's doing as much as Flamini can do. These other players can evolve. Coquelin's continuing to progress. Ramsey can progress. They can kind of meet in the middle. So we don't have a Cazorla step in. Uh, I think the manager will go with Coquelin and Ramsey. They'll have a chance to kind of further get to meeting in the middle there and, and finding a balance. And that, you know, most discoveries uh, are accidental. Trial and error is how most things are discovered in life. Like, I mean, who the hell planned Coquelin and Cazorla, for God's sake? How many conversations were held about that before we saw that happen? And it kind of evolved and clicked, I would admit, quickly. So I think that's what it's going to be. We're going to ha give Coquelin and Ramsey another go. Hopefully ha they have a time to make something. I don't see El Nenny happening particularly quickly. But... With injuries, you could see a Coquelin El Neni or El Neni Ramsey, and it might take off, and it might become the go-to partnership, and that's how it'll happen. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, sometimes getting world-class, sorry for using it, world-class talent back in the side lifts everybody's game, mm -hmm. and I just think we've managed, as crazy as it seems, to forget how special Alexis is, and I think we're going to get a really strong reminder in the coming weeks of how important he is to this side, the energy, the dynamism, the yeah. moment of magic. I, I don't think you can overstate his importance to the way the whole 11 plays when he's in it. Um, let's leave it there since we're at like two hour, 40 minute mark. That should be enough for that match. Um, uh, on our next podcast, we'll discuss the FA cup and whoever we brought in at the deadline. No, I'm kidding. Really? Seriously. Um, anyway, uh, you can find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto. Read him on Ars blog. Tim, thanks. My pleasure. Yeah. I mean, for a downcast, horrible, horrendous Elliot's on a rant pod, it wasn't the worst. And Paul, uh, you should be finding him on Twitter at Posin in My Pants and reading his blogs when they come out. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. Leave us a review on iTunes. What you do is you click the five stars, and then underneath you write really, really nasty stuff. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. Please block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner if you haven't done so already. It's so much easier than having to write all that nasty shit. Um, you just hit the block button. It works great. Anyway, uh, we will come back to you after the FA Cup. Sorry, this one took a little longer than usual, but I got so upset about the Chelsea result that I burst my appendix um, and had it removed. So anyway, until next time, enjoy the Cup. We'll talk to you after. Cheers. Cheers.